Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. This season, season three, we are looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by Mark. And in our last episode of season three, we saw that the Spirit drove Jesus after his baptism into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, I want to say something about Mark's gospel as we, as we read it. A detail is never, ever, ever wasted. When it comes to a gospel, gospels are not newspaper reportings, but rather very artful retellings. And in a story like Mark, you need to look for the little details. So that detail 40 days is something that you want to pay attention to because the word 40, or the number 40 rather, signifies a special unit of time. So the New Testament in particular has two words for time because it's written in Greek. There's chronos time, which is the time that we all know. Uh, That's sort of days of the week or schedules on your calendar, stuff you got to get done. And then there's also another kind of time, which is a time within time, which is God's time. The Greek word for it in the Gospels is kairos time. The Hebrews would use the word 40 to signify this kind of time. This is a time of testing or a time of learning, a season, if you will, a time when you turn around and suddenly time stops, if you will. Uh, The children of Israel wandered for 40 years, we're told. That would be Kairos time for them. Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days. That would be Kairos time. The prophet Elijah flees for 40 days. That's Kairos time. That's a time within time. So 40 is a marker or a symbol of this kind of time where, where God will spend with us. Okay. But you can still say more about time when it comes to the Bible. So Yes, we know when we read the Bible that there's a time within time that's God's time. We also know that God acts within our time, which is another important point about Scripture. I like to say that the ancient Hebrews, alone of the people living in, the, in contemporary times, for them, they, they invented our idea of time. What happened is the others living around them didn't think in linear time. They didn't think about time at all. They thought in wheels or cycles, if you will. Time really didn't mean anything, but the ancient Hebrews would begin to record time. Say, for instance, a man named Abraham was born, a man named Abraham followed God, a man named Abraham had had children, and all these things are dated in time because they believed that if God did something once, God would do something again. God did something for them, God will do something for us. This is a key part of why we read the Bible is because of this idea of time. If God did something for these ancient people, heal them, guide them, restore them, uh, correct them, uh, whatever the message might be, then God will do it for us. And so this is why we learn these old stories, not simply because they're interesting, because they're also the story of us. Okay, so we've learned so far that there's time, time, and then there's God's time. So God acts within time. We've also learned that if God did something once, God will do it again. But yet still, there would be one other important idea of time in the Bible that we've got to learn in order to understand these stories. The Hebrews believed that one day time would end so that this linear time would be over. History would end, and they called it the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord would be an important last word for God because this would be a time of justice, a time of correction a time of righting wrongs, a time of filling up the valleys, a time of lowering the hills, a time of making everything equal again, drying every tear. 
uh, the Hebrews looked forward to a time when God would reign, and this would happen at the end of, got it, time. So to begin this episode, I really want to start in a world some 750 years before Jesus, not too far geographically from where Jesus was from, but definitely 750 years before, and it's a place called Bethel. Bethel is an important place in the Bible. You see the name again and again. The word Bethel means house of God, Beit El, if you will. Beit meaning house, house of God. Um, Abram pitched a tent there in Genesis chapter 12, so Bethel is right there at the beginning of our story uh, in in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jacob dreamed of a ladder at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28 with angels ascending and descending on it. And so later in the story of God's people, after the kingdom of Judah and Israel split into two tribes, you had right at 10 tribes in the north called Israel and two tribes in the south called Judah, Uh, a king of Israel in the north named Jeroboam would erect a worship site uh, at Bethel in order to compete with the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, the temple in Jerusalem was no longer their capital city. And so he wanted to have a worship site that would be certainly more convenient, but also to keep his people loyal to him. So he built a a temple there, in effect, okay, and get our minds around this. Just imagine a temple that's a copy-paste to keep you from having to go to Jerusalem, but it was complete with a golden calf. Now, we know enough about the Bible to know that golden calf's a no-no, but let me unpack that for you. Golden calves were rain gods, so we may think it's strange as modern people to read about these sort of idolatrous things. But I want you to think of it this way. It's just hedging your bets. If a golden calf is a rain god in a world with very little water and without rain, your crops won't grow and you'll die, then, then it seems practical, if you will, or even smart to hedge your bets just a little bit while you're worshiping Yahweh, the, the God of your ancestors, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Go ahead and have a golden calf on the side just in case. Well, it's a no-no because it breaks the first and second commandments, first of all. And also, if you want to go a little deeper, I mean, Without the God of the Ten Commandments, you also don't have the ethic. I mean, if you're going to hedge your bets, then you're going to cheat in other ways, too. In other words, you're not going to be different in the way that God asks us to be different. Which means that Israel in the north had some pretty good things going on. They had a robust economy. They had a sophisticated aristocracy. They had foreign trade. They had elegant religion. But because they didn't quite have... The ethic of the God of the Ten Commandments, they strayed in some ways. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer, even with beggars at the gate at Bethel at their church. So enter the prophet Amos. This is where Amos lands in the Hebrew Scriptures. This is why he exists. You know, I like to kind of unpack the role of prophets whenever we read a prophet. Here's basically why you have a prophet. When God's people ask for kings, God said, that's fine, but I'm going to give you prophets to speak truth to you. And we have stories about prophets that predate Amos, uh, like Elijah and Elisha, for instance, about 100 years before him. But Amos is the oldest prophet that we have in terms of the words. These are Amos's words. This is an anthology of what he said some 750 years before Jesus' birth. And so the story goes like this. From the kingdom of Judah, a rough and uncultured man traveled to Bethel with a message, and it was a message about the day of the Lord. So now I'm going to read to you Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 24, and now we know something about the day of the Lord so we can understand what the prophet is saying to them. Here we go. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. 
as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? And then he goes to talk about the church. I hate. These are God's words. And that's a strong word to say about someone's worship. I hate. I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. The offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. And that Hebrew word for noise there is a specific noise. It's the grinding of fingernails on a chalkboard. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In 1963, Martin Luther King would give a speech called the I Have a Dream speech in response to an important question when someone asked him, when would the demonstrations be satisfied? When would they stop marching? Martin Luther King said, when justice flows down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Quoting Amos and also referring to that the struggle would never be over until the day of the Lord. Which brings us now to the world of Jesus and the lightning bolt that would, that would strike Galilee in the person of Jesus and his ministry. And it has everything to do with the day of the Lord. I had a nice time in Israel just a few weeks ago. I had the great honor and pleasure of slipping away with my friend Edan. And one of the more moving things I was able to do, it was very low-tech fun. For me, I was able to walk a four-kilometer trail from a city called Chorazin to Capernaum. Chorazin is a, is a town mentioned in Matthew's gospel, not Mark's, but it is a trail that we believe that Jesus used to get from town to town. And so I was able to walk some two miles alone amongst the rocks and the fields of Galilee, looking at the Sea of Galilee in the distance the whole way. It was amazing. I imagined myself being a disciple of Jesus, asking questions. It just it felt like heaven. And what I love to say about Galilee is it's such a rest when you travel to, the, to Israel to see these places, to trace the world of Jesus. Galilee is a respite from the big city of Jerusalem. It's pastoral and it's relational and it's quiet and it's safe. And it's here that Jesus loved it. He loved the lake and he loved the people. And here he would turn the world upside down. And it has everything to do with what we're learning about the day of the Lord. Let me read Mark chapter 1, just two verses to start. This verses 14 and 15 goes like this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time is fulfilled, he said, and the kingdom of God has come near. Which means that Jesus was teaching them about the day of the Lord, but with a twist. God has begun his time of justice now in the middle of time and not the end. Remember the important Hebrew idea was that one day time would end and that would be God's time. Jesus is saying that God's time is right now and under our noses. A good analogy for this, it's the best one I can find, quite frankly, is D-Day, June 6, 1944. Remember this story from World War II when Allied soldiers secured the beachhead in Normandy. The war in Europe was in effect over, but it wasn't over. It would be over. The war in Europe would end with the Allies securing the beachhead, but it would still take another year or more of battles and bloodshed and mayhem and struggle and heroics, and it would be awful. But you could see it from there. With the arrival of Jesus, the same thing. With the kingdom of God being announced, 
suddenly there's a new possibility, a new hope, a new life, a new world called the kingdom of God that we don't have to wait for. Oh, the world's not finished yet, but we can see it from here. We can live for it today. I'll say this all the time. People living in the world of Jesus knew Bible stories better than most of us. And because of the way they viewed time, they knew these stories because they knew that God would do it again. I mean, every every Sabbath day, they would go to the synagogue and they would read and they would say their prayers and they would learn and study. And there's a story of King David that sits in the background of the Gospels that makes an excellent backdrop to Jesus' message in the Galilee. It adds the drama to it. I'm afraid that we moderns, especially modern Christian people, you know, we hear the, these stories, we hear Jesus say, the kingdom of God has come near, and we think, okay, great, yeah, he, he, you know, it is near. Uh, but, but the drama of saying that the day of the Lord has dropped in the middle of time uh, would have actually blown their minds. And so there's a story behind the Gospels here that also has a mystery to it that I want to read to you uh, today. Uh, the problem with the mystery in it is, is, is the mystery of translation. It's a story about King David, and I want to tell you about it. So King David became the king, the second king of Israel after the failure of King Saul. And King David wanted to build a capital city in Jerusalem, but first he would have to take it. It was a hilltop town that had been inhabited uh, many, many years before by a Canaanite you know, city-state called the Jebusites. So David would have to go to war to get this thing. And so we can read about it in the book of 2 Samuel, specifically 2 Samuel chapter 5. And let me just read verses 6 through 8, and then I'll show you the mystery. We can unpack it. 2 Samuel 5, verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, quote, You will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. And David had said on that day, whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, whom David hates. Yikes. You know, later we're told that David was told by God he couldn't build the temple because he was a man of war. And in this passage, at first glance, it, con- it sort of confirms that David could be a mean guy, right? Taking it out on the blind and the lame. Well, what I've learned is that the Hebrew here is obscure. Uh, one English translation of the Hebrew text actually reads it this way, and this is a more careful rendering of the Hebrew scriptures. The Jebusite said, you shall not enter unless you remove the blind and the lame. An Israeli soldier, an archaeologist, and a politician named Egal Adin uh, maintains that it was a common Canaanite oath before a battle to swear something like this, I swear not to fail unless we become as useless as the blind and the lame which is different, which is different. It's, it's not that they were taunting David with the, the lame and the blind. It was not that they were holding them up as you can't even beat someone who can't see, but rather it means the defending Jebusites believed that if they failed, they would be like other left behind and throwaway people. And that story's been the same, right? It, that story is as old as time, that there are always people uh, who, who have no use or people who would be in the way, or people to remind you how lucky we might be, and, and heaven forbid you should be like them. Which brings us back to the Galilee and the world of Jesus' ministry to the blind and the lame. When Jesus begins to heal these otherwise throwaway people, it means that the kingdom of God is here in the middle of time. When Jesus begins to heal the blind and the lame, it means that Jesus is showing us that no one gets left behind 
No one is a symbol for failure. No one is a loser or thrown away in God's eyes. Everyone has value, and we call this the kingdom of God. That is the radical, exciting, world-changing gospel of Jesus as he landed in the rocks and the fields of Galilee. And hey, we're still in chapter 1. Well, it would also take the disciples to help him get the message out. So he had the message. Now he gets to call people like you and me. Uh, Gosh, a couple seasons ago in Jericho Road, I got to talk about my fishing adventures. Um, I was able to fish in the Galilee with a couple of fishermen named Momi and Michelle. It was something that we sort of threw together. These are commercial fishermen on the shores of the lake. And much like Peter and Andrew, uh, they would head out every morning and pull up their nets and and catch fish uh, off the shores where Jesus did his ministry in Galilee. Uh, What I learned about Momi and Michelle, they were very nice to me. And and when they found out that I was actually useful, I was the oar guy, I could keep the boat sort of straight for them. Uh, They really liked me because I could help them get the job done a little more quickly. But they were rough men, and this was rough work. Uh, There was even a as I mentioned, I think it was season two, a fist fight between Momi and a guy who pulled his nets, put his nets down in Momi's turf. So not only did you have to fish all day, which was hard work, but there also might be some fighting going on there too. Uh, Tilapia, which is the main catch for these men, these are algae-eating fish and they must be net caught. And so Momi and Michelle would use a cast net some and a drag net some, but mostly we used a gill net. We'd drop a net out and then go back six hours later and pull them up. Here was my lesson. These are the guys Jesus chose first. In the kingdom of God, in the day of the Lord, drop down in the middle of time, fishermen, these guys are are not not all that cultured, and they are kind of rough. And there was a lot of profanity, and and, and they're they're guys you don't really want to get on the wrong side with. And And yet Jesus called them to get the message out, which is as remarkable as the healing of the blind and the lame. Let's read about it for a second. This is Mark chapter 1, uh, 16 through 20. We'll begin with verse 16. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he went a little farther, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. There is um, a column in the ruins of Capernaum today. Archaeologists found it with the Zebedee name on it, that the Zebedee family inhabited Capernaum for a long, long time, that these are real people in time, called by Jesus in time, just as Jesus will call us. Uh, These were rough fishermen who would follow, uh, proving, like we learned in the past episode, that faith is both easy and hard. It's easy in, in the way that you just you just do it. You just step in. You just put your toe in the water. You just follow. And then it's hard because life is hard, but that's okay. God gives us the strength uh, to carry on. And he tells these men, follow me and I'll make you fish for people, which sounds like the word that you would say to fishermen. But let's also remember that the people living in the world of Jesus knew Bible stories. They knew Bible stories like we didn't. And this is another case of a teaching from the day of the Lord. They knew the story from Jeremiah 16 some six centuries before, the prophet Jeremiah would say that at the day of the Lord, God would catch people. God would catch sinners and reserve them for punishment. And now here's where it's different. In the middle of time, in the kingdom of God, 
what the day of the Lord dropped right down in the middle of time. God would start a rescue operation and catch people, not for punishment, but rather for salvation. Catch people for love, catch people for healing, catch people for service, catch people for purpose in time. And the ministry continues today, and we're his disciples, and we call this the kingdom of God if we only look for it. Friends, there's a lot wrong with the world. We know this. But there's a lot of God in it, too. Take a look. It's all around. Jesus will show us. Thanks, friends. Hey, let's keep this story going, and I'll see you next week.